pray for us tonight. Amen. Amen. All right, so I want to uh, go back to verse number 4, Galatians chapter 4. I know last week we, we hit a couple things there towards the end of the class, and um, we talked about the fullness of time. We talked about how God is on a timetable. We went and ran a few verses on that. And then also uh, ran a couple things on this topic of, and God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law. And uh, we did run a couple verses about how um, new Bibles like to take that word made and change it to born. Um, and then, of course, we, we did run uh, a verse over there to, to John chapter number 1, um, talking about um, how uh, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and so and you, you, you end up losing your cross-references when you take it away, but I wanted to go a little bit deeper into that, give you a couple more things before we head out uh, on, on, on another verse here. But uh, it's important for you to understand that Israel, as we, and we, we, did, we did touch on this as far as Israel as a nation being qualified as a son, right? That's Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Collectively, as a nation, the nation of Israel is called um, uh, God's son, Right, But it's important to understand that Israel as a nation, or quote-unquote a son, in order for them as individuals to become a son of God, the son of God, Jesus Christ, had to come and repeat the history of the nation of Israel. Now it's important, and there's some things in here, uh, and again, this is some of the reasons I just, I just love this kind of stuff, is because you see that there's so much in just one verse. Um, see that word sent forth uh, there in chapter number four, verse number four. It says that he was sent forth. You know that, that that ties back to a very important prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two. Again, some of the reasons we run these verses, um, I don't think any of you in here would say this, but I think maybe some people would say that's a little bit trivial or or, you know, uh, where are you getting some of that stuff? And, but you know what? I, I, I'd stand to say that it's important that we just know and constantly confirm the fact that you just don't mess with the Bible. And you think that it's just an innocent change taking the word made and turning it into born. But what you don't realize is that there's some things that we're... I'm going to show you some things here in just a second, run some verses here, where you're going to be like, oh, it's really important that that word made is there, <laughs> okay? And so we're not smarter than God, we're not smarter than the Bible, and if we don't understand something or we think something should be changed, just go ahead and hold your tongue and, uh, and, and just do some more reading. All right, Matthew chapter number 2, look in verse uh, number 15. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 15, the Bible says, And was there until death of, uh, of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So what, what, what's going on here is there's being an Old Testament quotation. And uh, go ahead and go to Hosea. 
Go to Hosea chapter 11. He's quoting Hosea here in Matthew chapter 2. And then what you're also going to see here in Hosea chapter number uh, 11, verse number 1, is that you see right here the different applications of Scripture. Okay, and what you find out is that sometimes the prophetic statements that are made in the Old Testament, when they're quoted in, in the New Testament, what you find is that they, that they reveal that there's deeper meaning than what was even maybe intended when they were spoken back in the Old Testament. Okay, so Hosea chapter number 11, look in verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. This is, a, this is, a, this is a, uh, a futuristic prophecy, if you will, uh, from Hosea, talking about uh, Israel as a child. And if Israel was considered the son of God, right, obviously not the sons of God in the sense that they're saved, but he, he was referenced as the son of God, Jesus Christ also being the son of God, you see how those two things can now be, inter those are the, that's the connection. And it's prophesied that my child, uh, my son, my child, it says, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. That, see, the historical application of that verse is evident from the book of Exodus, right? God calls the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt, right? And Pharaoh and Moses going through the Red Sea, so on and so forth. But when it's quoted in Matthew chapter 2, you see that it holds an even greater weight in the sense that this, this verse in, in, in Hosea didn't just have a historical application, but it had a doctrinal application to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what you find out back there is in verse 14, When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And then what did they do? It says, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled of uh, of Herod, or that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, "Out of Egypt I have called my son." So there was there was prophecy, there was doctrinal application back here in Hosea chapter number eleven, but then also there's there's a spiritual application in verse number one of Hosea, and that's just simply that saved people uh, are to be called out of the world, right? To, not, to, 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 uh, to be called out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, right? You're told, to, you're, you're told to be outside of that. And so what happens is, is in order for the nation of Israel to be, have the opportunity to become the actual sons of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, had to be called out of Egypt and the prophecy was fulfilled. They went down to Egypt till the death of Herod. And then what does the, Lord, what does the Bible say? That He sent Him forth. Out of where? Out of Egypt. That thing connects you right back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And so the Bible says he was sent forth. And then it says his son was made of a woman, made under the law. And so what we find here is that uh, if you change that word made to born, you lose a lot of cross-references. Because here's a couple things about the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know that why in the world would you change it when there's so much supporting Scripture that draws back to this verse? Take your Bibles and go to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Show you some things that Jesus Christ was made 
Jesus Christ was made. Verse number 7, Hebrews 2, 7. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, uh, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things uh, put under him. It says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. You say, what was it? He was made. Shows, shows, the, shows the humility of Christ. That God manifests in the flesh. The, the, the same one that we read over there in Proverbs chapter 8, who rejoiced ever before him in the habitable parts of his earth, before the foundations of the world. What did he do? He made himself lower than a created being in the angels. He made himself lower than that. A little lower than the angels. Look at this, uh, we already read it, uh, but in uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, you don't have to turn there, you probably have it written down, but I'll read it just for, uh, just for the sake of um, the sequence of verses we're going through here. John chapter 1, verse 14 uh, says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So He was made flesh. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21. I use this verse when I witness to people all the time. One of my favorite verses to quote when I'm witnessing to somebody. Verse 21, For He hath made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. What was He made? He was made sin. The Lord Jesus Christ was made sin for you and I. Galatians chapter 3, we've already gone over this verse, but it bears repeating. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. What was He? Being made a curse for us. Being made a curse for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He was made a curse for you. Right? He was made a curse. How about this one? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why in the world would you change it? Look at all the cross-references you miss. What are you telling me Jesus Christ wasn't made? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse number 45. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is, considered, is, is referenced here as the last Adam. And the Bible says that He was made a quickening spirit. You say, well, how is that a blessing to you? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. If Jesus Christ wasn't made some of these things, you and I would be in pretty deep trouble, don't you think? I'm pretty thankful that the Lord made him some things. How about this one? 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. First Corinthians chapter number 1, look in verse number 30. 
But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Man, I'm sure glad He was made those things. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, all because the Lord made him those things. And so you, what happens is, is you miss out on all those things that interlock the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Lord did uh, with him. You change that word to born, and what do you gain from that? Sure, you, sure there's, there's a prophecy that he's going to be born. Unto us a child is born, right? All that different stuff. You guys know uh, those verses. It's not that it's wrong. It's that the Bible is written in a way that you have to study to get the fullness of what it is you're talking about, what it, what it is you're reading. And so when you change something, you say, oh, well, you know, I got a verse saying he's born. Yeah, but we just, we just ran, what, seven verses? Seven, eight verses? On the Bible saying that he was made. And so why would you destroy those, those cross? Those are obviously, those changes are made by people who don't read their Bibles. That's what the problem is. And so verse number five, the Bible says, To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. To redeem them that was under the law. The reason, the purpose, right, of him... Uh, being sent forth, of him being uh, made of a woman, made under the law. The, the purpose of it was so that he could redeem us that were um, under the curse of the law. Okay? And so, and so to redeem that were, that were under the law, there's an illustration Dr. Rutman gives uh, about a, a translator in Africa. And uh, they were translating some things and preaching, and, and, and he was looking at this translator, and he was trying to get him to pick out a word in his tongue for the word redeem. And so the translator, you know, explains to this guy, you know, what the word redeem meant. And he says, what, you know, he's searching for a word that would, uh, would effectively describe the word redeemed. And so the guy comes back to him, and he says, and he says well, the word that we have means this. And he says that the word means to take your neck out. And the translator looks at this, or the, the, the preacher looks at this, this, this African translator kind of bewildered, and he says, explain to me what it, what it means to, you know, to, to, to take your neck out. Uh, you know, and he says, uh, well, back when the Arabs began the slave trade here in Africa, he says our people were bound in these wooden yokes around their necks and clad with, you know, fetters around their wrists and they were chained together by these wooden yokes and they would clamp them down and he says and they would take these slaves and they would march them in single file lines as they were taking them away to be sold and he says and every now and again one of the princes from our tribe would walk and he would and he would tell the 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 the, the soldiers that were marching these these slaves away he says I want to take this guy's place one of these one of these captives place he said what he would do is he would lift that wooden yoke and the guy would take his neck out and the prince would put his neck in and he would take his place and he would be taken off into slavery. And so that he said that was, that was the best way that he could describe, you know, redemption. 
And so, and, and as far as the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned, He does the same thing for you and I. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ, he became, he became flesh and He dwelt among us. That's what gives Him, that's what, that's what makes Him different. You know, that's why, that's why the Bible, that's why He was all God, but the Bible says He had to be made perfect. You ever read that? And that he was made perfect through sufferings. He had, to, he had to walk in the shoes of you and I. The Bible says that we don't, we don't serve a high priest that can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we yet without sin. And so he was the, the walking perfection of the fulfillment of the law. But in the same, he was burdened with the same struggles and the same issues that you and I have in this mortal flesh. Now, he wasn't a sinner, right? He made an open show of the law and of the principalities and powers, and, uh, and he was sinless, but he, he did that so that he could, have, he, could, uh, he could say, you know, I know how you feel. And that great Bible word to be redeemed, uh, for him to take our place, for him to buy us back, right? And, uh, and he, did, he did that... Um, so that you and I could get to heaven. And so he says, under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Let's take verse number 6 along with it. Because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, the adoption of sons. Now, when you start you know, reading um, uh, the different verses and stuff that talk about the adoption and uh, we'll get into those in, in Romans chapter number eight. And uh, what you find out is that um, you're given you're given a, a partial your, your salvation isn't completed. You're given what they call the first fruits. You're given what they call the earnest of the spirit. Your soul is saved, right? But your flesh isn't saved. But the Bible says that we might receive the adoption of sons. So the purpose for for that is that. We become part of the family. We're not an outsider anymore. We're brought nigh, the Bible says, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so by being brought nigh, we become, we become part of the family. Now, if you were to look up legally um, what, what takes place when an individual is adopted, and this, is, this isn't coming from a, a devotional or a commentary or anything like that. This is, this is legal... Um, you know, uh, parameters of adoption. And you know what they say? They say the adopt, when, you, when you're adopted, it says that it's the same as birth children. You become the same as a birth child. That means that the adoptive parents assume all legal responsibility to care and to financially support the child in which they've adopted. Isn't that a blessing? <laughs> the, the blessing is, is that, guess what? Once I got saved and I became a child of God, you know what that means? The Lord now has a responsibility to take care of me and to make sure that, uh, to make sure that uh, I've got what I need uh, in, order to, in order to get through life. He's going to support me. Not only that, but in case of the, the adoptive parent's death or decease, the estate gets broken up by percentage just as if they were a birth child. They differ nothing. 
And so the inheritance that comes from the parents also gets brought down to the adopted child. And the same percentage that the birth child gets is the same percentage that the adopted child gets. There is no difference when it comes to the inheritance. We just talked about some of that stuff with the uh, inheritance and, and, and the, and, you know, we talked about that between Abraham's seed and all that kind of thing. We, get, we have some spiritual inheritance. We, we, have, we have a part in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're brought, into that, we're brought into that line spiritually by the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we do have an inheritance um, that uh, the Lord gives us because of our position in Him. Not only that, but he ha they have uh, the, the adopted child, they have what they call the right to information. The right to information. You see, there's information, they call it non-identifying information, identifying information, and then they have medical information. And depending on what state you adopt in, you have, uh, there are certain parameters. Basically, you have to, th that child is, is, uh, is legally um, allowed to see, you know, what family, what ethnicity they are. If they came from some kind of different kind of religion, the, 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 um, the, 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 the agency that they were adopted through, those are non-identifying, or the, the non-identifying things, the, the agency they were adopted in, the circumstances that, that went around the, the adoption, so on and so forth. And then the identifying things, their, their, their lineage, you know, the history of their, of their biological parents. They're, they have a right to that information. And then, of course, the medical information. Was there any kind, are they, is there, you know, prone to different diseases, you know, is, you know, uh, does cancer run in the family? Does heart disease run in the family? Those kinds of things. You know, they're, they're entitled to that information. And as adopted children, you know what we have? We have all the information that we ever needed. He gives it to us. Because we're adopted, we, we have a right to the information that, uh, about what we are, where we came from, where we're going, what to expect in the future. And you know what the Lord does? He's a good adopted father, <laughs> right? He gives us all the information at our fingertips. He tells us exactly what we need to know about ourselves. He tells us exactly what we need to know about where we came from, what our problem was, the situation around our adoption, what it took to become adopted, the price that he paid for us, all the details. He tells us all of it. And then finally... It's, it's legally binding that adoption is permanent. When that thing is signed off on and that child goes home and all the paperwork signed and the judge signs off on everything, there is no going back. It's not like what I did with my puppy that I had a little while ago. You know, I bought my puppy, brought it home, realized that that dog was full of the devil, and I rehomed that sucker. You know what I'm saying? That's what I did. And uh, <laughs> went to a great home. I'm sure they love him. He's wonderful. But he's not in my house anymore. <laughs> That's not how adoption works. <laughs> okay? When you, when you become legally adopted, uh, you can't, you know, man, this kid's really not working out. <laughs> You know, this kid's needing more hassle than it's really worth, you know. So I think I'm just going to go ahead and give him back to the, the orphanage or something, you know. No, you, there's no, there's no give backs when it comes to adopting people. <laughs> it's just not how it works. And, uh, and when you become adopted into the family of God, there's no going back. There's no losing it. 
See, there's these simple words that the Lord uses in His Bible that should really negate all of the doubtful disputations that people go back and forth about and losing your salvation and all this different stuff. What more does He have to say than the fact that you have the adoption of sons? What does the word adopt mean? You can't give them back. It's bound. It's set in stone. I'm His child. And uh, I tell you, when you, if you've been raised and you didn't have a decent family life, man, it's sure good to know that you got a new family. Amen. Some of you, you may, have a, you may have a great family life, you know, or somewhere in between. You know what's good to know? Man, I'm, I'm not just, I don't just have a great family here on this earth. I have a great family uh, in heaven with the Lord. I'm, I'm a part of that, the bloodline. I'm a part of the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. The adoption of sons. Because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. Well, that's a blessing, right? He tells you, he tells you that uh, you're sealed into the day of redemption. The, the, the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, take your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, look in verse number 15. Start in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Notice he said that over in Galatians as well. He says you receive the, uh, the, that might receive the adoption of sons. And then he says over here in verse 6, in, uh, so, uh, the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. What is that, Abba, Father? It's like, it's like, it's like saying Daddy. It's like, it's like, a, uh, it's like a deeper you know, uh, affection for your father. You know? It's like you, you're, you have, now you have access. I've, I've give the, I give the illustration uh, frequently, I guess, when it comes to this. At least I just gave it to the teens. I, I forget when I give it and when I don't. But, you know... If I walked into your house and made myself at home and started eating out of the refrigerator, it would be mildly inappropriate, right? But now I have access to God, and I, be, and I belong there. If I go to New York right now, I could drive, you know, 15, 16 hours up there. I could walk into my house. If I, get, if I got there at 6 o'clock in the morning, I could walk into my house. I may scare my mom half to death. I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know. But, uh, but you know what? I would be welcomed with open arms, and I would have access to whatever it is I want it in that house. You want to know why? Because I'm a son. Haven't been there in years and years and years. And guess what? I have the same access I had when I was, when I was in the house. You know that? Because of, because of the fact that I'm a son. And uh, the affection that you have towards your parent, uh, somebody who takes care of you, he says we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, that's uh, Romans chapter number 8, verse number 15. Look at this. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What did he say back here in Galatians chapter 4? He says that he sends, uh, he says he sent forth the Spirit of his Son into, uh, into your hearts. What does that Spirit do? It bears witness that you're one of His. 
the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God. Then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, we, shall, uh, we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present uh, time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Okay, here's what we're going to get into the second part here. For the creature was made subject unto vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also hath, uh, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. Okay, look here, um, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. You see that? First fruits. What is that? The first fruits of the Spirit. That's the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of your body. That's Colossians chapter 2. That's the, that's the working of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual circumcision that cut your soul away from your body so that you now are eternally secure. You are now adopted into the, son, uh, into the family of God. That's a working of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago when we talked about baptism. That baptism, that baptism is a spiritual baptism. You were baptized into Jesus Christ. That's a working of the Spirit. You were given the first fruits of the Spirit. You see that? It's all spiritual. And so what are you doing? So I've been adopted, but I'm not 100% there. He says, for the Spirit uh, of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, what? The redemption of our bodies. I have the first fruits of the Spirit. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of me and all the work that He does inside of me. The moment I got saved and the work that He does inside of me as I'm saved and I walk through this life and He, and he convicts me and He guides me and He shows things to me and He points me to the Lord Jesus Christ and He illuminates the Word of God to me and all the workings of the Holy Spirit. Those are the first fruits of the Spirit that I have. But there's something else I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for my dad to come pick me up. You know what I'm saying? It's like sitting in an orphanage, man. And you're sitting in an orphanage and you're sitting on your bed and all these kids are around, you know, and you're looking around and you're just kind of hoping, man I, man, I hope somebody picks me, you know. And all of a sudden you receive a letter, you know, when one of them, uh, you know, one of those ladies come and sits you on your bed and says, hey, we got a letter, just want to let you know you've been adopted. Man, and that joy just mounds up inside of you. Man, I can't believe it. Somebody wants me. Somebody loves me. Somebody wants to care for me. And they say, you don't even know the half of it. You know who adopted you? Like, no, I have no idea. Man, royalty adopted you. <laughs> do you realize, do you, do you realize that you're, you've been adopted into the family of the richest man on earth. You're going you're gonna to have, you're gonna have satin sheets, man, and you're going to have servants at your beck and call. You're never going to want for anything ever again. You're going to live in a massive house and they're just going to give you everything. You're going to eat good, man. You're going to be showered with love and that anticipation and that joy. And they say, when's he coming to get me? Soon. 
<laughs> soon. Really? How soon? Soon. Well, what, what should I do? Well, get your stuff ready, man, because he's coming. <laughs> you see that thing? And you sit there and you go, man, I just can't wait for him to come, man. I can't wait for him to come. He's going to show me to my room, man. And we're going to have fellowship with him for the rest of my life. Could you imagine? That's what the Bible, uh, that adoption thing looks like for you and I in the Bible. Is that, you know what he did? He looked down and he said, nobody wants this guy. I want him. <laughs> you see that? And now we're given the earnest of the Spirit. We're given the first fruits of the Spirit. We've got the signed, uh, notarized copy. You've been adopted. And all these things are now yours. But what are you doing? I'm just waiting for the adoption to whip man, the redemption of my body. I'm just waiting for him to come get me. I couldn't be more adopted than I am now. Right? I'm on my way home. You know what I'm doing? I'm just getting my stuff ready. That's all I'm doing. It's one of these days when he comes, I want my bags to be packed, and I want to be ready to meet him. And we're going to go home. <laughs> and it's going to be fellowship and love and all those things that you can imagine. Well, the Bible says you can't imagine them. <laughs> but over here he says uh, that uh, he sends forth his spirit, the sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so we become adopted into the family of God. Now, a couple things here in this next verse. He says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, I believe we did touch on a, a couple things as far as um, we went to John chapter 15, verse 15. And the Bible talks about that. It uh, uh, says, uh, You're no more servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master doeth. He says, But I call you sons, right? Or I call you my friends. Right? I call you friends. And so we know that um, as far as the servanthood to this world is concerned, you're no longer a servant. You're a son. You've been, your, your, your status has changed. And so the Bible says in verse 7 that you're no longer a servant. You're no more a servant but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now this thing about being a servant, like again, we touched on a couple things last week, but I want to bring out just a, a couple more things on this because Paul, he really liked to be called a servant. He really liked it. It's one of his favorite titles that he gave himself. In Romans chapter 1, he starts out the book by saying Paul, a servant uh, in the book of Romans. He repeats that same, that same introduction in uh, several of his books. Yeah, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. And so uh, he, 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 calls him a, he calls himself a servant in Philippians. He calls himself a servant in Titus. Um, and uh, and the reason, good reason, because the book of James, uh, Peter, Jude, the apostle John in Revelation, they all start out saying, we're the servants of God. It's a pretty high calling, right? And so... It's, uh, it's important that we understand, you know, what this servanthood is. Because what he's telling you here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, is that you're no more a servant. Well, then how do you reconcile the fact that Paul tells you he is a servant? 
But yet Paul here is saying that you're no more a servant. Right? Contradiction in the Bible. Throw it out. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, no. Let's not jump the gun. 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. Lay a little bit of groundwork here. First Corinthians chapter number. Did we go over some of these verses by chance? Does anybody have these in their notes? I don't want to act like I'm senile. Verse number 19, Paul says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Look at what he says. He says, Though I'm free from all men. Okay, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Okay? So every pastor, uh, elder, bishop, missionary, evangelist is supposed to be the servant of the Lord. That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to serve the people that God puts underneath their uh, authority, puts underneath their ministry. They're to be servants to those people. But go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 24. I say, I'm going to read a few verses and I'm going to put this thing together so... It comes to a, a clear point. Verse 24, the servant of the Lord, okay, he's going to give you, he's going to give you some, some, some characteristics here. The servant of the Lord must not strive. Right? Shouldn't be striving with people. Always fighting. Right? You should always see people in conflicts. Why, why always in a conflict? thought you were the servant of the Lord, right? But be gentle unto all men, gentle. David said that God's gentleness made him great. Gentleness is a, is a, is a direct attribute, attribute of God. Okay, he says, be gentle unto all men, apt to teach. Apt to teach. It says, uh, patient. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Those are, these are characteristics of, of a servant of God. I'm not striving with people. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be unnecessarily offensive. I'm trying to use kid gloves. Gentleness, right? And then he says... Uh, to, to all men, not just to people that you like, not just to people that you agree with, not just to people that treat you the way you want to be treated. You're to be gentle with all men, even on their bad days, when they're acting a fool. You're still gentle with them. And then it says, apt to teach. Most people are just apt to tell them what to do. Right? Most people, most people are apt to, yeah, well, the Bible says this. And just give them a piece of your mind. 
Well, are you being a servant of God? Well, I quoted him the Bible. Yeah, but how did you quote it? You know, there's, uh, you know, they say, they say that um, if you ever, if you ever, uh, you know, have a retirement account or something like that, you know, you're paying into something. They say any, anybody who handles, helps you handle your money, that they should have a heart of a teacher. Because anybody who tell, there's a difference between someone to tell you what to do with your stuff, and somebody that'll teaches you what to do with your stuff. There's a different heart behind it, right? And so the Bible says you should be apt to teach. And then if you're apt to teach, you know what you have to be after that? Patient. Because you want to know why? People don't get it the first time. People don't, you know what I have a, you know what I have a problem with? I had somebody tell me this one time. They said, you know what your problem is? I said, what's that? <laughs> they said, you expect people to grow as fast as you did. Isn't that the lens that we tend to look at people through? Well, I got it, I, and I learned this this time, and I, did, and I got it this way, and I got it this way. They're not you. You can't expect people to get it the way you got it. You can't expect people to be at your level because you've reached some great platform, and now, and now you've, got, you've, you know, you've got the bull by the horns, and you've got it all figured out. You can't expect them. You know what you have to do? If you're going to teach somebody, you've got to do it patiently, and you have to wait. Why do you have to be so patient? Because they oppose themselves. You ever see somebody doing something, you're like, that's a bad idea. Right? You want to know why you got to be patient? Because sometimes you don't really know. They could be doing something that you don't agree with, and guess what? God could be right in the middle of it. I've seen people do things that are, I consider to be really stupid. You know what the Lord did? He worked it out anyways because their motive was right. Man, how about that? Why do you got to be patient? Because sometimes you're wrong. All you can do is, if they come to you, try to, give them, try to give them what the Bible says, not to give them your own opinion. And you know what? Peradventure, God give them repentance if they acknowledge the truth. You're not responsible for the outcome. You're responsible to just give them what God gave them. Give them what God has. That's it. And then keep your mouth shut. I've learned the hard way is you never give out the last half of your canteen. I've learned that the hard way. I've talked to people before. You know what I did? Just dumped my whole canteen out on them. Drink up. <laughs> I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. And you just, blah, 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 and they're just, blah, blah, blah. right? You know what you need to learn to do? You never give out the last half of your canteen. You know what? Sometimes it's good to just wet their whistle so they'll be thirsty for more later. And what it does is it keeps you safe that if something doesn't work out or if, you know, you, you, you heaven forbid, get your opinion in there, they can't come back on you and say, I did exactly what you told me to do and it didn't work out. You never give out the last half of your canteen. Most of the time they don't want it. <laughs> right? Go to Colossians chapter 4 giving you some attributes of a servant. Colossians chapter 4, verse number 12. He's giving you a, a, an example here of a man. 
He says, Epaphras, who is one of you. He's just one of the people at the church at Colossae. Just this guy named Epaphras. What is he? He's a servant of Christ. Oh, you mean he's not the preacher? You mean he's not a missionary? He's not an evangelist? He's not a, a titled Sunday school teacher? He's not, he's not anything? Nope. He's just one of them. Well, he must have some kind of great ministry. He must have some kind of metrics to show his success as a servant of God. Well, no, he says, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Oh, you mean there's no metric that you can visibly see his servanthood? Nope. Maybe somebody would look at Epaphras and say, he just comes to church, sits on a pew, doesn't do nothing. Paul says, you know what he is? He's a servant and he's laboring for you by prayer. He gets called out. What a blessing, man. And what does he pray? That ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. What a great prayer. He doesn't interject what he thinks the will of God is for somebody. He doesn't inject his two cents. What does he do? Silently prays that people uh, that, he, that is in his church would stand perfect and complete in the will of God. Whatever the will of God is for their life, I pray that the Lord, that you would be in the perfect will of God and standing for him in whatever it is God wants them to do. That's his prayer for the folks in his church. What a blessing. And you know what Paul says? He's a servant. You know, every Christian should be a servant. It's not just for preachers. It's not just for evangelists or missionaries. So many times we get wrapped up in thinking that it's something that we do. A servant is something you are. I'm going to get to something here in just a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and then I'm going to make a, a, a statement here, show you something, and then we'll be done. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, look in verse number 22. For he that is called in the Lord... Being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Remember what we talked about uh, before? That uh, you know, you're free in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that you're no longer a servant, but you're a son. You're no longer in bondage. You've been set free, right? You're no longer in the shackles of the law. But the Bible tells you here that, the Lord, that if uh, that you're a servant of the Lord, he says you're the Lord's freeman. Oh, you mean so because I'm free, I am then to be the Lord's servant. Oh, yeah, that's how that thing progresses. So I went from being a servant to being free, and now my next move is to become a servant again. Why is that? Why is that? Go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Man, I love the Bible. <laughs> Hopefully this helps. First Peter chapter number 2. Look in verse number 16. As free... See that? Look in verse 15. For so it is the will of God that 
uh, with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, we just talked about that, being God's freeman, being out of the shackles, but not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Now I want you to think about this for a second. He says, he says, as free, as you being free, but not using the liberty that you get from being free as a cloak of maliciousness. So what he does is he tells you the tendency that you'll have. Wow, man, I'm free from the law. I'm free from the, the bondage that's contained in the law, right? And the Bible says the danger in that is simply this, is that you will then use your liberty as a cloak, right? Something to cover up your malicious intents, your motives. Anybody in here ever met like a real... You know, everybody, anybody work at a place where like the business owner's kid works there too? You know what I'm saying? You ever been in school and like the teacher's kid was in the class with you? You know, or like, I mean, I mean we lived in a small town. I remember one of, one of the, the principal, uh, the principal for the longest time, her daughter was in my high school class. And they just walked around, man, like they owned the place. You know, they had this attitude, and they would get away with stuff, and they would do things. And like, do you know who my dad is? You know who my mom is? Aren't that, aren't that like the worst people? You know what the Bible says? You can be adopted into the family, be set free from all the shackles of the law and all the sin and everything else. And the Bible says that you can use that liberty that you have and the position that you're in with the Lord as a cloak for your malicious behavior. Because you just want what you want. You want to know what those people all have in common? They just want to do whatever they want to do. And it doesn't matter. What about everybody else? They could care less about everybody else. You know what they want? They don't care because look at who my parents are. My daddy owns this place. What a punk. Those are the worst stinking people to be around. You know what the Lord says? You better be careful. How do you keep yourself from using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness? He gives you the answer in the verse. He says, but as the servants of God. So you mean the remedy, the safety net for me to not use my liberty as a cloak of maliciousness is for me to realize that it's not about me getting what I want, but rather me serving other people. And that is what keeps my motives right. Wow. So if me, instead of abusing my liberty with the Lord... If I go to the Lord and say, what do you want me to do? I'm your servant. You know what I can't do? I can't, I can't mess up. Because I'm his servant. I want to do whatever he wants me to do. That's the key to it. Because after all, you know what you find out? We'll just skip ahead here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You guys know these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, verse number 20. The Bible says, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You want to know what? You're not your own. 
You know what you are? You're a slave. You're a slave. You've been purchased. You know, it tells you exactly what you should expect. The first person saved like you're saved is an Ethiopian eunuch, a servant, a slave of, the, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians in Acts chapter 8. He's an Ethiopian. He's a Hamite. What does the Hamite say? Over there in Genesis chapter 9, verse 25, he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he'll be unto his brethren. That's the first one saved, just like you and I are saved. He tells you exactly what to expect. You know what the fact of the matter is, folks? Is yes, you're no longer a servant of sin. You're no longer a servant of the law. You're no longer in bondage. You've been purchased and you've been given all the liberty in Jesus Christ that you can have. You have free will. But if you're not careful, if you don't learn that Christianity is not about you, if you don't learn how to stay close to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and put yourself in this position as a servant, you'll have a tendency to use your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness and you'll be a stink in the nose of other people. They'll think, what an entitled punk. You know, that's what people think about a lot of Christians. It's a bunch of entitled punks. Your life is not your own. You don't, have a, you don't have a say in what church you go to. What Bible you read, what music you listen to, where you live, what job you have, who you marry, how you dress, how you wear your hair. Unless the Lord gives you the liberty and unless the Lord allows you to have a preference, you don't have a preference. What does he say? In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. That's not to, listen, that's not to say that you'll never have a preference. The Lord will give, give you a lot of preferences. But you better acknowledge him first. Why? Because he's your master. He's your master. That's the important part. I didn't get nearly as far as I wanted to tonight, folks, but that's where we're at, and I don't want to take any more time. Does anybody have any questions real quick before we take a break?